Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk with Alec Whiteman, author of Music in My Life, Notes from a Longtime Fan. And get this, this guy was chairman of the board of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan. Today I have Alec Whiteman. Uh, Alec has been the chairman of the board of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, He's a corporate lawyer. He's got a new book out called Music in My Life, Notes from a Longtime Fan. Uh, Alec Whiteman, welcome to The Indispensables. Well, thank you, Bruce. Thanks for having me today. Um, and so tell us, uh, how, do you get, uh, how do you get to where you are? How do you go from being a, a corporate lawyer to uh, uh, being chair of the board of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Well, you know, it's a 60-year it's a passion for rock and roll. Uh, started when I was a kid, 10 years old, and, you know, continues to this day. Uh, at the height of my career, uh, when I was a busy, active lawyer and heavily involved in the management of a national law firm, I started promoting national act singer-songwriter shows in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, I still do it. It's been 27 years. In 2004, I became the co-executive partner of Baker Hostetler, a big national law firm with its heritage office in Cleveland. Uh, The folks at the Rock Hall heard about me and my concert promotion sidelight and asked if I wanted to get involved. And I did and took it seriously. And I'm still heavily involved there today. That's that's fantastic. So so you're still practicing at Baker Hostetler. Oh, you know, most of my partners would consider me to be retired at this point. Uh, I've transitioned all my, you know, client responsibilities. Late in my career, I developed a niche practice of helping public company boards with their self-evaluation process. And I'm still doing some of those, but that's it. And just for people who are not read into the world of corporate law, um, can you just explain like what it's like to, to be a big shot lawyer at a place like uh, Baker Hostetler? You know, it's it's uh, it, it's a hardworking profession, uh, probably at any level. Certainly in a in a corporate practice, it's uh, Amlaw One Hundred law firm. It's it's a busy, intense practice. Uh, I will say, through most, most most of that, I think music provided a great outlet. And even when I got into the concert promotion business, uh, I used to joke that I spent less time and money on it than most of my partners did playing golf. And were, were you doing like big music contract work or, or representing rock stars or record companies or concert venues? Is, is that how you got into it? To the absolute contrary. Uh, one of the things I think I've always been pleased is that I never combined my passion with my profession. So I really did not get into the entertainment law side of things at all, at all, at all. Uh, and getting into the concert business was something of a lark. I got talked into doing it by uh, a singer-songwriter of whom I was a big fan. But no, I have never, ever combined my passion for music with the profession. And I'm pleased to say that because I think I'd have screwed them both up if I had done it. Probably wouldn't have been as successful of a lawyer, and I would have taken all the fun out of the, out of the music. So um, do you play music? Or are you, you know, uh, do you play the guitar or something? 
not not at all, not at all. Uh, you know, in, in sixth grade, uh, I had my music teacher stop a, a little program in the classroom and, and literally make fun of my singing ability and had me narrate the program we were working on so she didn't have to hear me sing. I'm still traumatized by the whole event. Well, shame on that teacher. <laughs> but but I, I will say, you know, as somebody, I, I do know how to play the guitar, but uh, I'm a music lover. And, and my wife always says, why don't you play more? And I say, because I like I, I like listening. I'm, I'm more of a fan than a player. So I get that. Yeah. I, and, you know, to some extent, uh, I think I, I found music that that not only spoke to me, but spoke for me. So I was able to push the button on the on, on the turntable or the CD player or now the streaming services uh, and find the music that that spoke for me. I didn't uh, I never took up playing at all. And, and your concert uh, production company, it's Zeppelin Productions. It is called Zeppelin Productions. And just to make it clear, it has nothing to do with Led Zeppelin at all. That's not where the name came from. I don't think we needed to disabuse people of that possible connection. Well, we might have needed to disabuse the folks associated with Led Zeppelin. I, you know, <laughs> I've never had that cease and desist letter, and I don't want to start now. Got it. And uh, so did you start that uh, as part of, was that your collaboration with Tom Russell that led you to that? Yes. Yes. I uh, I was a long, I was a fan of Tom Russell. We're going back to the mid nineties, back when there used to be, uh, you know, he had a hard mailing list and uh, I got a mailer from him one day that said on the back, if you know a venue in your town that would be appropriate for Tom, call this number. It sat on my desk for six weeks, and one day I just was inspired to dial the number. The guy at the other end said, you're not going to believe this, but he's about to kick off a little Midwest tour. He's got a night open between Pittsburgh and Detroit. Why don't you see what you can do in Columbus, Ohio? So I called every venue in town that did live music, said, if you'll bring this guy to town, I'll sell 20 tickets. They all laughed at me. And the next day I called the, the agent back and said, couldn't get it done. The following day, I was up in Cleveland, actually in our firm's Cleveland offices, and my secretary called and said, you got a, you got a phone call from Tom Russell. Well, for me, that was like something between you know Mick Jagger and Bruce Springsteen. So I called him back, and uh, he was living in Brooklyn at the time. We talked for a while. He said, well, you got to do something. I, you know, I don't have any, anything to do that night. I said, no, I, I can't do it. I called my wife and told her this. I said, I talked to Tom Russell, and I told her this story, and she said, well, you've got to do that. I knew a little venue in town, a little, a little old renovated firehouse. Uh, and I'd been to a couple of, of small concerts there and I called and the lady said it was available. And so I rented it and on eight days notice, I got every family member, friend, client, coworker that I could get uh, in the door. I had 99 people in eight days. And actually kind of going all the way back to your original question about Zeppelin, the night before he was going to be here. You know, I'm a lawyer and I, it's like the, the cobbler and the kid with no shoes. I thought, holy cow, what if this thing burns down? And, you know, I've got personal liability. So I, I formed a, a corporation and, and was struggling with a name. And, and my wife reminded me that I had always used the word Zeppelin as a lucky word. It went all the way back to my high school days. So I called it Zeppelin Productions. And the next day, Tom was there and we were off to the races. And that was when? That was uh, March of 1995. 
So, okay. And then, so take us along uh, the way. Uh, how much of a business entity has this been? You described it as a passion, uh, but is this also um, uh, what has allowed you to backburner your your legal uh, work? <laughs> not at all, at all, at all. My goal, my goal from the beginning was not to lose too much money. So no, the the, the business model doesn't work, as a couple of my agent friends tell me when they joke about uh, the economics of, that I enter into with the artists. And then, so how, but is this what led you to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Well, it, it certainly was uh, was a, a, a key uh, element in that. Uh, I became co-executive partner of Baker Hostetler in 2004, and I was getting interviewed by a, a public relations person in Cleveland who we'd hire to publicize the leadership transition at the law firm. And she asked me, you know, what do you what do you do for fun? What do you do when you're not working? I said, oh, you know, I play tennis three or four times a week. I chase kids around, and and I promote national act singer songwriters at Columbus. And I could see her eyes roll back in her head. I don't think she'd ever interviewed a corporate lawyer who was in the concert promotion business, even as a sidelight the way I was doing it. <clears throat> but she actually told the folks at the Rock Hall, she knew the people at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, told them about me. The then chair, the then CEO asked if I wanted to come up and have lunch. And I did. And we got along famously. And they obviously you know, were intrigued by my passion for music, which came through, asked if I wanted to come on the board. So yeah, absent absent the little concert promotion business in Columbus, I, I may not have ended up as chair of the board of the Rock Hall. Is, would you describe the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a mission-driven organization? And, and how did you plug into that mission and support that mission? Oh, I think it's absolutely a mission-driven organization. And, and uh, there's a couple of really important components to it. Certainly, the obvious one is the preservation of the art form. I mean, Rock and roll is a, a global art form. And, you know, if you've, and I'm sure you have traveled internationally, you know, you can be sitting in a cafe in Bangkok where nobody speaks English and, you know, there'll be Motown music uh, coming over the speakers. So it, it's, uh, it's certainly the preservation of the art form, but it's also an educational mission. And it, and it varies everything from everything from educating the public about rock and roll, but there's also a world-class education program at the Rock Hall. Uh, which uses music, uses rock and roll to teach kids about history and math. And uh, they've done it for years face to face up there. Uh, they've brought in kids from the school systems around Cleveland and, and taught them in the building. But one of, you know, one of the wonders of the pandemic, it's, you know, as you know, this pandemic in many respects is uh, just accelerated trends that were already in place in a lot of situations. We had a campaign. We still do have a major campaign going at the Rock Hall right now. And one of the pillars of that campaign was to take this world-class education program more effectively into the digital world. They're now into seven figures. Uh, you know, over a million kids have participated in the Rock Hall's education program online. So there's an education mission as well as an arts mission. And are you still involved? I am still involved. I'm actually uh, one of the co-chairs of this campaign we have underway, which started out again with four pillars, one of which was education focused. Uh, one was to build out the technology infrastructure, uh, one to enhance the endowment, uh, but also to do a complete redesign of the exhibition space. And uh, we were so successful with the campaign coming out of the box that uh, we've now expanded it. And actually, we're doing an expansion of the building. 
So I'm, I'm a co-chair of that campaign, which is an honor and a, a privilege. I'm still on the executive committee. I chair the compensation committee. I'm still involved. It's not easy to write a book. What led you down the path of writing this book? Um, the book is called Music in My Life, Notes from a Longtime Fan. Uh, clearly, um, you're writing uh, as a music lover, but as, I mean, you're an insider. There's 60 years of being a rock and roll fan. Now, 27 years of promoting shows in Columbus, Ohio. There is the Rock Hall involvement. I've got a lot of stories to tell, and, and tell them I do. <clears throat> and over the years, people would hear my stories and say, you ought to write a book. Maybe they were just trying to get me to quit telling the stories. But people said, you, you, you ought to write a book. And I never took it seriously. But uh, late 2016, I had a total knee replacement up, up until, you know, a relatively short period of time before that I was still playing serious tennis and, and that all went on the sideline. The following year, my wife had a, a cancer experience and she's just fine now, but it was a tough year. So I had time on my hands. The, the law practice was pretty much behind me at that point. And so I started to think about those stories and, and jot down notes on three by five index cards, just the names of artists concerts I'd been to, stories I could recall, just, you know, great big stack by the time I got done. <clears throat> I thought, well, I'll take a shot at putting these together. And, and I actually was writing for myself. I didn't think anybody other than my brother and I would ever read what I was writing. But, <clears throat> but I got them all organized kind of in a chronological with fast forwards. And I began to write. And oh, I got what is probably about a third of the way into the content, and, and I stopped. It was a little bit too much about me and not as much about the music. And even though I was just writing for myself, it's kind of not where I wanted to go. And I went back at one point and cleaned it up, edited it a little bit, but I never really got back into it until the pandemic. And, you know, middle of March 2020, I had time on my hands. I was hunkered down here at home. and. So I went back and I and I started writing. By the middle of May, I had down on paper everything that was on those three by five cards. It was in 56 little snippets. And I thought, wow, there's some pretty good stories here. And I sent it out to, I think, six people, uh, some who knew music, some who didn't. And I asked them to take a look at it. And I was surprised. They, they all really liked it. And they all thought there was a book there. I, I thought, well, these 56 little snippets, maybe I'll do a blog, you know, a podcast, dribble them out, you know, kind of one at a time. And they said, no, no, there's a book. So I went back and did an edit, pulled it into 14 chapters, hired an editor, uh, actually a big time editor, Holly George Warren. She's the real deal. You can check out her credentials. She agreed to come on as the editor and the two of us worked together. And suddenly I had a book. Yeah. What's it like for you um, uh, working with, I mean, uh, clearly you are uh, accustomed to working with artistic types. If you have worked with musicians, singer songwriters to promote them, what was your experience like of being the artist and having an editor uh, engage with you and your art? That was fun. I, d I didn't, uh, I interviewed three potential candidates and I'm sure they all would have been fine. But Holly and I clicked right from the beginning. Uh, musical taste, uh, I think writing style. She'd read the book and she was very comfortable with it. I didn't want somebody to change my voice. And, and just personality. And so the, the, the editing experience was, was fun. 
you know, in some ways, the more challenging experience has been a little bit of, of this kind of thing. I'm, I'm used to promoting other people. <laughs> and, uh, and in the law business, you know, I'm used to being an advocate. It's, it's a little unusual, although maybe I'm getting used to it after a few months, uh, to be self-promoting quite so much. And, and, you know, makes me cringe a little bit sometimes. Uh, well, I mean, if I may say, uh, you know, as somebody who has written a number of books myself and, you know, been out there uh, trying to get people interested in the books, I always say I'm one part evangelist. And uh, what I'm really always trying to sell is the story. Uh, I'm trying to um, expose people who might be interested or might benefit from the ideas and the stories in the book. So I, I, I think your, uh, your humility um, is transparent. So I don't think you should be bashful about selling your book. Well, thank you very much. And, and it is, you know, it's, it's a little bit like the same advice I would give a young lawyer about getting involved in the community, um, you know, civic or, you know, philanthropic endeavors. I always say, don't do it unless you have a passion for the cause, um, because you won't enjoy it, you won't do a good job or whatever. So it does make it easy to be talking about a book, yes, that I wrote, but I've got a passion for the art form. I have a passion for the people, the, whether they're the stars, the Neil Youngs, or the Bruce Springsteens, but also those folks who, you know, for most of the world are under the radar screen, the Tom Russells, the, the John Fulbrights, the late Jesse Winchester. I mean, it, it, it's, it's easy to talk about them. Yeah, I have a soft spot in my heart for live music. Uh, I've interviewed a couple of performing artists for the podcast. Amy Spies, we did an episode. And uh, uh, Mr. G, uh, his name is Ben Gundersheimer, but he goes by Mr. G. He's a Grammy Award winning artist. Anyway, so I have a, a soft spot. I grew up um, playing the guitar and my guitar teacher, who's still one of my best friends to this day, played out a lot. So, you know, I, I, I have a soft spot in my heart for, for what you do. And uh, I, I totally get the passion. It's been a pleasure. And one of the things you learn uh, dealing with musicians, whether they're the famous or the should be famous, but aren't, is they are just people. And I suppose there's an artistic mentality and in, in, in all of that. Uh, but they are just people. And, 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 I, and I, I learned that early on. And it's, it's fun to talk to them about their families and, and politics and, you know, the world. Um, I, I joke in the book, you know, I did spend some time with Jimmy Webb. I didn't ask him what the cake was doing in the rain. I think it's, it's, it's nice just to deal with them as human beings. Absolutely. And I want to talk more with you um, about your experiences, uh, getting to know and getting to promote and be a tireless advocate for these performing artists. Uh, and I want to talk more with you about your book, Music in My Life, Notes from a Longtime Fan. We're going to take a little break and then we will be back with Alec Whiteman. Are you a leader of your organization looking for straightforward, data-driven business guidance? Then look no further than the Conference Board's new podcast series, CEO Perspectives. The Conference Board is a business think tank that provides trusted insights for what's ahead to the world's leading companies. Each episode features a 30-minute conversation by some of the Conference Board's noted subject matter experts, discussing a range of relevant business issues critical to CEOs right now, such as the return to workplace, infrastructure spending, and where U.S.-China relations are headed, among other timely topics. You can find our new podcast series on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We invite you to listen and subscribe to CEO Perspectives. 
brought to you by the Conference Board. We're back with Alec Whiteman, uh, former chairman of the board of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, corporate lawyer of Big Shot uh, Law Firm, Baker and Hostetler, and um, author of Music in My Life, Notes from a Longtime Fan. Uh, so welcome back, uh, Alec. And um, so your book opens and closes with Dion. Uh, tell us uh, what what has Dion meant for you in your life and your kind of journey in music? Well, the, the book does open with Dion. It, it opens with me as a 10-year-old kid laying in bed in uh, Euclid, Ohio, listening to my transistor radio. And the first song that, that I remember really uh, jumping out at me was The Wanderer. The, the words, the, the, the melody, the, everything about it. Uh, and I became a huge Dion fan, and I and I was throughout the '60s. I I lost him as as most of us did, kind of in the mid '60s. And and we now know in retrospect there were a bunch of things going on, career issues, and a heroin addiction. Uh, at the peak of his career, came back late uh, with Abraham Martin and John late in the '60s, and uh, I saw him at Duke when I was there, solo acoustic. And so I was always a huge fan. He always meant a lot to me. I, I bought his records even in those decades. That, Others weren't. And then a couple of years ago, uh, I was uh, on Facebook and I saw I, I was following Dion and I saw that there was a musical in the works about his uh, life. And I called a woman who I know on the board of the Rock Hall, who's very involved with Broadway production, asked her if she knew anything about it. And she didn't. But the very next day, I mean, talk about fate. She got a, a something out of the blue uh, from the executive producer of The Wanderer, uh, asking if she was interested in investing. And, and she wasn't, but she sent it along to me. I'd never done anything like this in my life, but uh, I ended up investing in the musical. It was scheduled to open at Paper Mill in New Jersey last spring. And then again, this spring, it's now scheduled for April of next year and hopefully on Broadway in the following year. But the book ends with me going to a reading of the musical in very late February of 2020, right before the pandemic in a rehearsal space in Midtown Manhattan. I didn't even know places like this existed. Going in with about 50 people, I'm sure mostly investors, maybe some prospective investors. Steve Van Zant was there, who's the musical director. You know, unbelievably, Dion comes in about 10 minutes before it's supposed to start. This little tiny room, he picks up, picks up a folding chair and sits down right next to me. You know, here's this kid who's idolized him since I was 10 years old. At some point, I made the comment that, you know, there's people in this room who've got more invested financially, but nobody more passionately. And he asked what my name was. And I said, Alec Whiteman. And he said, you're Alec Whiteman. And the truth is he he knew me, he knew me, knew of me through a mutual friend. Or Actually, I shouldn't say that. I didn't really know the gentleman. He has a friend in Cleveland who had mentioned him to me. I don't know how the connection got made. Certainly the executive producer with whom I had invested had told him about me, but he was happy to meet me. I was thrilled to meet him and I got to sit you know, for three hours watching a musical of his life, the circle was complete. It must be so peculiar to go. I mean, it, it really what you keep telling over and over again is this story of being a super fan who then put yourself at the center of the action. Y yes. I mean, uh, I sometimes say beyond just music that, you know, good luck in life is 
putting yourself in a position for the opportunity and then having the guts to take advantage of it. I didn't go looking to do any of these things, but if the opportunities show up in, in, in front, once in a while you grab them. And this this was a good example. I, uh, a real thrill, obviously, to have met Dion. If, you know, the cover of the book, it's, it's you know, it's a Dion blurb on the cover. This is real insider history, a, a great book. He and I have become, you know, I say friends, it's probably a little bit of an overstatement, but we've been in touch and he was willing to take a look at this book and then give me a blurb to use uh, to promote it. So what is it that that you think that makes you somebody who, um, instead of being on the periphery, just being a fan, is able to put yourself at the center of the action? I mean, it's similar with, with your story, uh, right? Your story with Tom Russell. Um, being on the edge of the action and then putting yourself at the center of the story and making yourself uh, a critical player in, in, in their performance career? You know, it's, it's, it's a great question. I mean, the truth is, if I take those uh, personality tests where I did take them years ago, uh, in many respects, I'm an introvert. And, and so it's not like I'm out banging around looking to uh, you know, self-aggrandize. I hope not, anyway. But it's it's what I said before. I think that uh, there are there are times in life when there's something you enjoy, you care about, you're passionate about, and an opportunity presents itself. And uh, either on your own or you're encouraged by others uh, to step up and and take advantage of it. So the the, the promotion of national act singer songwriter shows in Columbus is is cool. But the truth is, with one limited exception, early on. I never had an ambition to go compete with AEG or Live Nation. <laughs> you know, you know, another of my little cliches, it's important to find the right sized pond to swim in. So so is it just that you come to the table ready to add value? You come to the table with your own time and energy and interest and a willingness to help with some of the heavy lifting? Because look, I mean, I can tell you, you know, if I were just like, you know, if, I, if I'm spitballing here with you, like I'm thinking, hmm, maybe I could follow Alex's example and get to know Ringo Starr and Paul McCartney while they're still alive, you know? <laughs> well, yes, uh, I think I probably, you know, I, I get involved in things for which I have a passion, which I truly enjoy. And I, you know, I always believe when you get involved in something, you should bring value. And you should try to leave it a little better than you found it. Again, it's 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 finding the right sized pond. It's finding out, you know, where you can impact. You know, I've been very fortunate in the Rock Hall setting. Chairing the board of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland was, you know, probably a highlight of my life. That also gave me an opportunity. You know, we haven't talked about this. There's there's two separate entities. There's also the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Foundation chaired for many years by uh, Jan Wenner, now chaired by John Sykes, the head of iHeartRadio. Uh, I'm on that board as well as the board in Cleveland, and that's the one that does the inductions. And, you know, it's in that context that I've been able to meet, a, uh, you know, a couple of the, the folks I wouldn't have met simply promoting National Act singer-songwriter shows in Columbus. And, and, and I mean, are, are, are some of those um, relationships reflected in the book? Or, I mean, how is it you end up promoting a a show with Art Garfunkel. <laughs> That's a story in and of itself. I characterize it as a once-in-a-lifetime experience. On the board of the Rock Hall in Cleveland uh, is a guy named Jules Belkin. And Jules and his brother, Mike, 
Belkin Brothers Productions dominated the rock and roll promotion world from the east side of Chicago to the west side of New York for 40 years before they sold to Live Nation. And, and Jules has been wonderful to me. We've become great friends. I think he thought it was funny that this corporate lawyer in Columbus was doing what he'd done for a living. And he, and he called me one day uh, and said that he had been friends with Art Garfunkel's manager and that Art had been off the road for a few years with throat issues and was looking for a safe 300-person venue to test a new format where he would sing, he'd bring a guitar player and sing. He would tell some stories, he'd read poetry and do a Q&A with the audience. And Jules thought of me and asked if I wanted to do the show. I was honored, I said, sure, and agreed to promote an Art Garfunkel show in Columbus. Now, the way I promote in Columbus, I've never run an ad. I've got a mailing list. I send out now emails, put tickets on sale. It's as simple as that. And so with Art, this was a no-brainer. I sent it out by the weekend before the show. You know, I'd filled the hall by my standards, and, you know, we were ready to, to do the show. And I woke up on a on the Sunday morning before the Thursday show and opened up the Columbus Dispatch and on the front page of the arts and entertainment section above the fold is a picture of Art Garfunkel, an interview with him and a little sidebar that says for tickets, call this number and it's my law office. And nobody told me they were doing this. So, you know, between Sunday and Tuesday, I sell another, you know, 150 tickets and a, you know, got to rent more chairs, have to hire more security. I mean, it was just, it all got out of hand. Not really. It turned out to be wonderful. And Art showed up and, uh, uh, you know, Art's a little different, um, but we got along great. He was very nice to me and I could tell, you know, more stories. We went out afterwards. Actually, my wife and I had a wonderful lunch with he and his wife in New York the following year. But for me to promote an Art Garfunkel show was really something special. And the challenges associated with doing it tested me, let's put it that way. I mean, that's just extraordinary. Did he do Bridge Over Troubled Waters? No, he, he specifically did not do that song because at that point in time, he didn't think he could hit the high notes. Uh, I saw one time when I was um, in law school, in, uh, maybe I was working as a lawyer in New York, and we went and uh, Paul Simon uh, was doing these very small venue shows at a Broadway theater and Art Garfunkel appeared for some of the show with him. Uh, and that's probably, that's a, that's a high point of my life, uh, seeing that show. Are you promoting shows now as we speak? I mean, I guess right now it's such a, a weird time because of the pandemic, right? I, I am promoting shows uh, some number of years ago. Again, I, I spent my whole career advising clients not to invest in things like Broadway musicals and not to invest in restaurants, but I've done both. And uh, a number of years ago, I invested in a little place here in town that was a friend of mine was starting up uh, called Natalie's. Uh, and right before the pandemic, uh, we opened a second one. Uh, timing wasn't so good. But they are food service establishments built for live music. Think the Bluebird Cafe in Nashville. They are listening room environments. They, they you know, serve a meal, then turn the crowd and do and do a, a show. 
And it's been wonderful. It's taken a lot of the pressure off me. The venue is there. They sell the tickets. I don't have to fool with them like I always did. They actually have an accounting system. I know how many people showed up. And it's, you know, it's amazing what you can do when you do it for a business. So they're open again. I mean, you know, we're, I've got, I think, six or seven shows, which is a lot for me in this time frame, on the calendar between now and the end of the year, all in one of the Natalie's venues. Yeah, we're, we're promoting. Now, you know, we're also holding our breath. They, they have just made the decision a week ago to require proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test within the last 72 hours to get in the place. You know, there's controversy about that. But, you know, we're trying to keep them open and keep live music going. And so it's called Natalie's? Yeah, there's one called there's one in, in Worthington, Ohio, and there's one in Grandview, two little suburbs right on the border of, of Columbus. And, and, and you uh, you're invested in those. I am not not a lot, but a little. And you're and you're but you're bringing lot. So is that your primary venue where you're promoting now? That's the only places I've been doing it for the last few years. How many seats do you have there? So the the smaller one uh, seats about sixty five, and uh, and we can get uh, you know a hundred in there with a shoehorn, and we've had artists in there who in the ordinary course would not play a venue that size, but they do it both because I've promoted them in town for years and we've become friends uh, and because we can jack the ticket prices a little bit and give them a good payday. So for example, in a venue that size, we've had hot tuna multiple times, uh, you know, Yorma Kalkinen and, and Jack Cassidy. I'd had Yorma there a few times and, and we've become friends. Uh, and when he brought Jack the first time, I know Jack was when he saw the place, he thought, I mean, I, I, I come to the Beacon Theater and fill it for a week. What am I doing here in a pizza place in Worthington, Ohio? The next morning, uh, they called and asked when could they come back. And, and so we've had Jack and Yorma here a number of times. That's so cool. You know, uh, just uh, for what it's worth, um, I think my brother would consider himself uh, one of the leading members of Yorma's fan club. And, um, uh, you know, he was doing during the pandemic this Saturday night show. Uh, online. Um, uh, my brother is very proud uh, that uh, he, he didn't miss a single one. So. Well, we need to get your get your brother to uh, to Columbus. We have uh, Yorma booked and I don't have the date right now, but I think it's the first weekend in January. I don't know whether Jack will be with him or not. And that'll be at the other Natalie's, which is the newer one. And, and we could get about a, a 130 or 140 in that. There's still, you know, small venues, great acoustics, great lighting, great sight lines, uh, but very intimate. Oh, that's fantastic. And a nickel will always be a nickel. <laughs> <laughs> that's so cool. Um, if somebody's listening and they're saying, gosh, you know, how do I get to be like this guy? I mean, you seem very calm, cool, and collected. I mean, I guess they could say, I mean, how does somebody get to know all these rock stars? They could say, how does somebody get to be asked to be um, on the board of the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But they could just as easily ask you, how do you get to, to run a, a zillion-dollar law firm? How does somebody get to be like you? I, I have a personal philosophy, I guess, to say about life. I understand the importance of long-range planning, strategic planning, in particular in a business environment. It helps you set priorities. It helps you make decisions. But I have always thought, that spending a lot of time with long range planning, certainly on a personal level, and making your decisions today designed to get you someplace five or 10 years from now is nuts. Um, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I think you make short term decisions 
cognizant of their long-term implications. You may be opening options, you may be foreclosing options, but you make decisions based on what's in front of you at the moment. And so, you know, I'm not sure I'd tell anybody to live their life designed to be, be like me or for that matter, you know, achieving things I've achieved or, or arguably even the things they've got in mind. Uh, be careful about those long range plans. Things, things happen. So, but I did say to you earlier, and I'll, and I'll say it again, it's important to put yourself in the opportunity zone, you know, a, an opportunity for good things to happen and to have the guts to take advantage of them when they're there. Be willing to make a mistake, take a little bit of risk. I've never been a big risk taker. I've never done anything, and certainly in this music environment that would affect my lifestyle if it all went wrong. Uh, maybe maybe if that building had burned down and I hadn't incorporated it, it had been an issue. But um, make smart short-term decisions. I love what you're saying because it's a little bit counterintuitive. You're saying these long-range plans, um, my wife uh, likes to quote um, an aphorism, uh, man plans, God laughs. You know, you're saying make good short-term moves. Yes, I think you're, and I've heard that aphorism before, but I think your wife and I would agree. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, uh, that's fantastic. Alec Whiteman, author of Music in My Life, Notes from a Longtime Fan, Thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you for having me. In our next episode, we'll talk with Aaron Tice of Generate Life Sciences. I've known Aaron for a long time, and she is like the poster child for the go-to person. Wait till you hear her episode next week. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about gotoism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.